Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's good to see you today. Those of you that are with me in Auditorium 2, welcome. Those across the way in Auditorium 1, it's good to see you. And those that are joining us on YouTube Live, wish you were here, but we're glad you're watching online. I want to direct your attention to the screens. I want you to look at this picture and tell me what's the story behind the picture. Really? Anybody? Alice in Wonderland, right, absolutely. Uh, actually, the title of the, of the book, the children's book, is actually Looking Through, uh, uh, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Now, the thing that I like about this particular uh, children's fairy tale is uh, there's a lot of insightful statements in it, uh, like this one. Uh, the White Queen, that's who was pictured there, says to Alice, let's consider your age to begin with. Um, and, she's, and Alice says, well, I'm seven and a half exactly. Oh, you needn't say exactly, the queen remarked. I can believe it without that. Now, I'll give you something to believe. I'm just 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, the queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. And Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always practiced for a half hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Now, I like that because, and it's, it's interesting to me that underneath the surface of this children's fairy tale, Lewis Carroll is commenting on the mystery of faith. In other words, why is it that some people can believe things that other people believe are impossible to believe? Now, for the white queen, uh, faith was a matter of effort. She tells Alice, hold your breath and shut your eyes. In other words, you can believe anything if you just try hard enough. But on this side of the looking glass, we, like Alice, know it's not that simple. Because faith is not simply wishful thinking, like holding your breath and, and shutting your eyes and trying hard to believe. That's not faith, that's make-believe. And as Alice puts it, it's no use trying. One cannot, just cannot believe impossible things. But some people do believe in things that other people don't believe in, who other people consider impossible. And that is a mystery. Like take uh, the followers of Jesus, take Christians, like like many of us here this morning. When you think about it, what Christians believe is really extraordinary. I mean, God became a human and walked the earth. God died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven. And through simple faith in Jesus, God gives us eternal life as a free gift. Alice might say, I can't believe that. That's quite impossible. Uh, and many of the people that you rub shoulders with every single day find it hard to believe what you believe. Now, while researching this quote from Alice and the White Queen, I ran across a blog entitled, Why I Could Never Be a Christian. Now, here's what the author says. In Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, Lewis Carroll has the White Queen boast that in her youth, she could believe six impossible things before breakfast. Psh, he says, only six? Today's Christians can beat that with ease, and not only before breakfast. To be a Christian, you must accept through faith and contrary to evidence that there is a reality above and beyond nature wherein exist angels, archangels, devils, demons, principalities, whatever they are, and spirits, holy and otherwise, and God himself. 
You have to believe that virgins can conceive and give birth. You have to believe a man who died 2,000 years ago is still alive. And this man, when he lived, could defy gravity, control the weather, sweat blood, reanimate corpses, uh, including his own, pass through solid objects, and project himself into space. You have to believe an intangible part of every one of us survives death. You have to believe in a magic formula, Christ died for me, or similar, and believe that that leads to eternal life. And after death, believers will live again in an improved copy of the body they had when they were alive. And God reversed the laws on which the universe operates to make all this happen because he wanted to sacrifice a part of himself to himself. And he can do this because he's God. He prompted men to explain his plan in a special book. And all you have to do to live forever is to believe this book is true. Now he concludes this way. He says, though I once did, I can't subscribe to any of these ridiculously impossible things in the vain hope that I might live forever. Can you? And this was the picture that he had posted. And the more ridiculous things you believe, the more you'll be saved. Now, many of us, though, we don't feel we have to force ourselves to believe these things. We aren't shutting our eyes and playing let's pretend, even though we might be accused by, uh, of that by some people. No, we believe these things are, 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 are true. We see them as reality. We see them as truth. We see them as life. So why is that? How do believers believe things that unbelievers refuse to believe? I mean, are Christians just more gullible, are more naive than most people? Again, we might be accused of that, and certainly there are naive Christians, uh, don't get me wrong, but it can't be that so many millions of people who profess Christ uh, are, are, are just plain delusional. It, it certainly can't be that. No, there's a mystery here, and it's the mystery of faith. Some people have it, and some people don't. The question is why? Why do unbelievers not believe? Why do believers believe? And that's the question I wanna look at this morning, and I believe we find an answer to it in John chapter six. Now, by the way, if this is your first time here this morning, we are so glad you're here. One of the things that we would want you to know about us is that if you attend here on a regular basis, you'll find that week by week, we're studying our way through whole books of the Bible. And right now, we are studying our way through the book of John and this whole series we've entitled, Believe. And uh, because this whole idea of believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is the reoccurring theme in, the, in this gospel. In fact, at the very end of the book, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes this. He says, these things are written, in other words, everything I've written in the book, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Now, we've come to John 6, which is the longest chapter in the book of John, 71 verses. It's taking us three weeks to walk our way through it. And John chapter six clearly shows us what it's like to have faith in Jesus, what it's like to believe in Jesus, because basically John six is about belief and unbelief. So would you pause with me just a minute before we read God's word, and let's pray and ask the Spirit to open our eyes and our ears. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts to obey what you will say to us this morning from your word. This word that you've inspired to encourage us and equip us and to correct us 
that we might live our lives by faith and not by sight. Send your light and truth and let them lead us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're at the end of the chapter. Jesus has just finished a very long, confusing sermon. And so we pick up in verse 60. It's, John says, when many of his disciples heard what Jesus had just preached, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered, answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So over the last two weeks, we've talked about how, uh, first of all, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people. And really, as we saw, it was way more than 5,000 people. That was just 5,000 men. So if you counted women and children, we're talking 10,000, 15,000, maybe pushing 20,000 people. Jesus said that, uh, um, fed that many people with five barley biscuits and two pickled fish. It was a, a, absolutely a miracle. And last week, Matt Dinsky helped us see that when the crowd experienced that great miracle, they immediately decided to take Jesus by force and to make him king. They figured if Jesus can feed us, then Jesus can lead us. But Jesus will have none of it. He slips away uh, from the crowd uh, to be by himself on the mountain. It was late in the day. It's nighttime. Now the next morning, many of the same crowd woke up and they realized that Jesus was gone, so they set out to find him. And Jesus totally ignores, uh, they come to him and they say, they find him in Capernaum. They find him in the synagogue there, preaching. And uh, the, the people come and say, Rabbi, how did you get here? And he totally ignores their question. And he focuses on why uh, they have come looking for him. And with that, he launches into this long sermon that helps us see why unbelievers don't believe and why believers believe. John 6 tells one long story that we have broken into three parts. So I'm going to need to go back to some of the passages that uh, uh, we've covered in the past, some of the ones that Matt covered last week, in order for us to really understand John uh, 6, 60 to 71, our passage for today. So we're going to begin by looking at reasons that unbelievers don't believe. Number one, the reason, one reason they don't believe is because they don't understand the spiritual significance of Jesus' message. They don't understand the spiritual significance of his message. Look back at what Jesus says to them in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Skip down to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, Matt did a great job unpacking uh, that passage last week. I just want to make one observation, and that is this. This crowd of people are struggling to believe in Jesus because they don't understand the spiritual significance of his message. Now, remember, they want to take him and make him king by force. Again, they figured if he can feed us, he can lead us out of Roman bondage. And again, remember that Jesus is in Galilee where hatred towards the Roman government was intense. Galilee was, was a place that was known for violent protests against the Romans, and it was Passover time, which was to the Jews like 4th of July is to us. God had triumphed over the forces of Egypt and had set the people free, and so it was a time of nationalistic fervor. So when this crowd experiences the miracle of the feeding, they put Jesus and Moses together, and they start thinking, well, Moses miraculously fed the people in the, uh, in the wilderness, and then Moses led the people out of Egyptian bondage, and now Jesus miraculously fed a crowd of people in the wilderness. So wouldn't that mean that Jesus can lead us out of bondage to Rome? So <clears throat> if you want to start a revolution, the best place to go was Galilee, and the best time to do it was uh, Passover. So it's not really surprising that these Galileans quickly come to the conclusion, let's make Jesus our king. But the miracles of Jesus uh, fueled the hope of their messianic expectations being fulfilled. And so they were thinking, maybe Jesus really is the prophet that Moses promised would come, and maybe this is the Passover when the revolution begins. So you have to have that background and how they are seeing things so literal in order to understand what Jesus says in verse 27 when he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is saying, what you Galileans have got to realize is that there's two kinds of bread. There's physical bread that nourishes our physical bodies, but it doesn't last, it'll spoil. And he says there's spiritual bread that nourishes our spiritual lives which lasts forever. But, he's saying, the trouble with you Galileans is your whole mindset revolves around the physical world. You ate the loaves, your stomachs were filled, and you were satisfied. And you see the, uh, you see the economic benefit of what happened on the other side of the lake, and you got all excited about it. He's saying, but you completely missed the spiritual significance of what happened. You saw the miracle, but you didn't see the sign that was pointing to me. You missed the point. Feeding people is a sign that points to my willingness and my ability to meet a much deeper spiritual need. That's why Jesus says in, in uh, verse 63 in our passage, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, and that was their problem. They didn't believe because they couldn't understand the spiritual significance of Jesus' message. And what was true in Jesus' day is also true in our day. 
Many people today do not believe in Jesus because they really don't understand what he's all about. I mean, hear me, Jesus never said that political free freedom or economic prosperity uh, were unimportant. I mean, you, you certainly can't uh, accuse Jesus of being indifferent to the plight of the poor or the oppressed, but Jesus wouldn't let people turn him into some chicken-in-every-pot politician. I mean, he could have been that, but he, he chose not to be. And he faced a world that was every bit as militarily insecure and economically deprived as our own, but he faced it with a message that was unashamedly spiritual in its emphasis. And we've got to understand that because throughout history, there's been a tendency in the church to confuse the eternal kingdom of God with the earthly kingdoms of men. Now, hear me, Jesus was not, and he is not, a political Messiah. He would not let them make him king because the kingdom he preached and the kingdom they wanted were very, very different. And one of the reasons that these Galileans abandoned Jesus and one of the reasons people don't believe in Jesus today is because they think that spiritual truth, if there is such a thing, but they believe that spiritual truth isn't relevant enough. It's not rational enough. It's not practical enough. I mean, people are starving. I mean, the government's going to hell in a handbasket. Something has to be done. Uh, don't tell us about some pie in the sky heaven. Uh, don't tell us about a personal, having a personal relationship with a man that lived 2,000 years ago. No, feed us now. Free us now. That's what people want today. But Jesus refuses to be a Messiah on our terms. He will not allow us to define who he is or what he should do. He's not a meal ticket, and he's not a political reformer. For the most part, his message uh, spoke to spiritual needs. But the spiritual significance of Jesus' message just wasn't what they were looking for. It's not what people are looking for today, or maybe they're just not interested in it. Because people want what they want, and they want it now. So one, one reason why unbelievers don't believe is that they don't understand the spiritual significance of who Jesus is or his message. Now, the second reason unbelievers don't believe is because they cannot swallow Jesus' ridiculous claims. They cannot swallow Jesus' ridiculous claims. Verse 41, look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, what is that all about? I mean, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? So they think they know Jesus. They, they know his father and his mother. They know where he's from. I mean, he's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So how can Jesus possibly make such outrageous, ridiculous statements claiming that he's come down out of heaven? Now, back in and in John chapter 5, uh, we saw that when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, he claimed to be equal with the Father. And those religious leaders thought his claim was blasphemous. Here in chapter 6, he makes the same kinds of claims to these militant Galileans, and they think it's ridiculous. His claims are ridiculous and outrageous. Look at what he claims for himself. Let's look, look in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 38, 
For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So look at what he claims for himself. He claims divine origin. He says, I have come down from heaven. He claims a divine mission. He says, I am here to do God's will. And what is that? That Jesus would raise up everybody who believes in him on the last day. How ridiculous is that? He claims a divine ministry. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and the one who believes in me shall never thirst. And they refuse to believe those ridiculous claims. Now, according to Jesus... The reason spiritual things have to take priority over physical things is because in the final analysis, physical things cannot satisfy the human soul. In other words, human beings do not live by bread alone. Karl Marx once said that religion is an opium to keep the poor content with their lot in life. But it's the physical world that's actually like a narcotic because Physical and material things anesthetize people to spiritual things. Like, it's like a, the physical world is like a, a, an addictive drug. Material things cause a constant craving for more, right? I mean, like this year it's a new car, next year it's a new house, this month it's a new 75-inch TV, next year it's a virtual reality system, this week it's a new outfit, next week it's a new whatever. I mean, but the hunger is insatiable, and it never ends. Now, here's why. We are victims to a spiritual hunger that we try to satisfy with material things. But material things don't satisfy. John Paul Sartre, the novelist, who was an atheist, he once wrote of the, the human dilemma with, with honesty that you don't often hear from an unbeliever. He says that God does not exist, I cannot deny. But that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. Is that not amazing? That God doesn't exist, I can't deny that. He doesn't exist. But I also can't deny that my whole being cries out for God. And I can never forget get that. I can, I can never get away from it. And that hunger, that cry for something eternal is in everyone. I mean, we all feel it. Even unbelievers feel it. And why is it? Because God put it there. Remember what King Solomon said? God has put eternity in our hearts. And here's the thing. Jesus made the ridiculous claim, ridiculous in their hearing, you understand, that he could fill, fill that hunger that we all feel inside. He said, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never grow, go hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so he's telling these Galileans, if you could only see me for who I really am, he's saying you'd realize that I'm the manna. I am the bread from heaven that you're longing for. But you, but you can't see me because you're looking for something. But it's not a something, it's a someone. He's saying I'm not just the giver of the bread. I am the bread. Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
but Jesus was bread these people just could not swallow. After all, they grew up with Jesus. They knew his dad and his mom. How could he, how could he say that he was bread? The bread of life that's come down from heaven. That's just ridiculous. It's not rational. Now, the blogger I referenced earlier said it this way. He said, there is not one scrap of evidence outside the special book that any of these items of faith are true. None are verifiable, and consequently, none have ever been verified. Accounts written interdependently 50 years after the alleged miracle man lived don't count. So he said the Bible doesn't count. So sadly... This man refuses to believe in the Jesus he says he once believed in because now from his perspective, faith-based beliefs lack evidence. They're not verifiable. They're not rational. They are, as he puts it, ridiculously impossible claims. So the second reason that unbelievers don't believe is because they can't swallow Jesus' ridiculous claims. And then in the passage, we find a third reason unbelievers don't believe, and that is they cannot stomach Jesus' outlandish invitation. They cannot stomach Jesus' offensive invitation. Look at verse 51. This is where it gets really weird. I am the living bread, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then were so confused, they disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What did he say? I think he said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What did he say? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So, what did he say? Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate in the wilderness and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things when he preached a long sermon in Capernaum. Now, this blows my mind because as Jesus continues to speak, he makes it harder to believe than easier. Sometimes he does that whenever he meets resistance to his message. He doesn't cater to unbelief. He becomes, sometimes he becomes more cryptic, more mysterious, and that's exactly what he's doing right here. He claims to be the bread of life. The crowd has a hard time with that. So now he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, he moves from being outrageous to downright offensive. And if you can get outside your Christian mindset just for a second, you have to admit, Jesus inviting us to eat his flesh and drink his blood is quite distasteful. Thank you. You're about the only one that gets that. It, I mean, it's off-putting, right? I mean, it's gruesome. It's gross. It's, it's, it's ghastly. It's cannibalistic. It's yuck. I mean, wow. Now, later on, the church took most of the yuck factor out uh, by saying that Jesus was really talking about Holy Communion here. But Jesus could not expect his disciples or the crowd that day to understand what he was saying as Holy Communion. 
Uh, They had no context for it. Now the clue to understanding what Jesus was saying is in comparing two verses, verse 54 and verse 40. Look at it on the screen. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, you can hear the echoes in both of those verses. They're very similar. The promise is the same, eternal life and Jesus raising us up on the last day. The only difference being is verse 54 speaks of eating and drinking Jesus' flesh and blood, and verse 40 speaks of looking to Jesus and believing in him. You see, that's the difference. So Jesus is using symbolic language here. He's not talking about literally eating his flesh. He's talking about believing in him as a spiritual participation in his life and death. So when he says in verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he is pointing to the fact that eternal life can only come to us as a result of his own violent death on the cross. He's foreshadowing that. He's saying that he can give us life only by him being willing to give up his life for us. And in that way, we participate in Christ's life and death. That's why he's saying that eating is believing, and believing is eating. So the metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood tells us what it means to believe. Now listen, you see, to believe in Jesus is not just to believe in him like you believe in Alice, a character in Through the Looking Glass. To believe in Jesus is not just to believe in him like you would believe a real historical figure like George Washington. No, no, to believe in Jesus is like eating because when you eat, the food enters you and that food strengthens you and sustains you and energizes you. The food gives you life. The food is life to you. But it's even more than that. The food actually becomes a part of you. And that is the kind of belief or faith that Jesus defines for us here. To believe in Jesus is to take him into the core of of who you are, to put him in the, the center of your life. It's to take him by faith, not by force, to take him by faith and make him king so that all the activities of life flow from him and through him and around him and all of life is centered around him and he is in you and you are in him. But that's pretty incredible. That's almost offensive. People choke on that today. I mean, Jesus is saying, I must be life to you. I must be your life. It's not good enough for me to be your inspiration or your moral example or or, or your teacher or certainly not your genie that if you rub up close to me, then I'll give you uh, all the wishes. I'll make all your wishes come true. He's saying, no, I have to be the control center of your life. But that, for many people, that's an offensive invitation. I mean, make Jesus the control center of my life? (laughs) No way. People can't stomach that. Oh, go to church, I can do that. Drop a few bucks in the offering plate every night, I can do that. Be a relatively good person, sure, okay. But let Jesus be, (laughs) be, be life for me? Center all of my life around him? That's going way too far. Look at verse 60. And when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can accept this? Well, not many. Look at verse 66. After Jesus said these things, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. So we see here uh, three reasons why unbelievers don't believe. The first is they can't understand the spiritual significance of his message. Uh, Second, they can't swallow Jesus' ridiculous claims. And third, they can't stomach Jesus' offensive invitation to trust him in a way where he becomes the control center of your life. So with, with so many intellectual obstacles standing in the way of faith, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that, that, that faith is even more of a mystery than ever. I mean, it's a message, it, it's a message ridiculous to the rationalist, so impractical to the materialist, so offensive to just about anybody that surely Jesus must have been torment, tormented by, uh, by, by the anxiety that no one would believe in, in him at all. But that, that's just not the case, which brings us to the second part of his message. So let's talk about the reasons that believers believe. Now, there are three passages in this text that tell us that there will always be those who will believe. Look at them. I have them on the screen, just so you know that I'm not making this up. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, these three passages confront us with an area of biblical truth that many find more difficult and more offensive than anything that we've said so far. Theologians have called this the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation, or short form, the doctrine of election. And it is the subject of enormous debate. Now, I think the easiest way to summarize what Jesus is saying here is for me to share with you a story that uh, was told by Dr. J.I. Packer. Now, when Dr. Packer was a young man, when he was a student at Oxford, he was on a boat on a river with some friends, and somehow he lost his balance, and he fell into the water. And although he could swim this particular area of the, of the, of the river, there were a lot of long, uh, thick weeds that got wrapped around his legs and his arms, and no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get free from the weeds, and the water was deep, and uh, very deep, and he, and, and he was a long way from shore, and he was afraid he was going to drown. Now imagine, Packer says, if one of his friends in the boat had said, don't worry, Jim, you'll be all right, just keep struggling, you can free yourself if you try hard enough. Or imagine, he said, if another of his friends had said, oh, I'd like to help you, but I have a problem interfering with a person's free will. But I can encourage you with some good advice, some tips on swimming if you'd like. Here, try this. Now, Dr. Packer said that these two possible responses represent ways that people have viewed Christ's work of salvation throughout history. The first is called and these are theological terms, but you just hang with me here. The first is called Pelagianism, which basically says that people have the natural ability in and of themselves to save themselves if only they would work at it. That's like the white queen telling Alice that she could believe if she practiced long and hard enough. 
The second is called Arminianism, in which God says, I'll help you get started, but you have to work at it too. In other words, like God, you, you have faith that gets you onto the football field, but then you have to run the ball to the goal line. Again, Packer says, this is the white queen offering Alice advice on how to hold your breath and shut your eyes to make yourself believe. Both those ways of looking at things basically say that if you want to be saved, you have to try harder. It's up to you. It depends on you, and it's your self-effort that will get you there. The question is, what do you do when you're like Dr. Packer who was drowning and self-effort would not save him? Or when you feel like Alice, that it's no use trying. I just can't believe impossible things. What do you do in situations like that? Well, Packer said that on, he, he was glad that on that occasion, one of his friends in the boat did not behave like a Pelagian or an Arminian, but a Calvinist. <laughs> one man jumped into the water, overcame Packer's helpless struggles, got him free of the weeds, brought him to shore, gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and put him back on his feet. And Packer said, that's what I call a rescue, a real rescue. And in John 6, that's what Jesus calls a rescue. Because Jesus knows the obstacles that are keeping people from believing in him as the bread of life. He knows what they're saying. He knows the obstacles. And he could see it in their eyes. He could hear it in their words. And he wasn't discouraged because he knew that salvation was not a matter of self-effort, but of divine grace. Look at verse 44 again. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, Jesus doesn't say, if you come to me, the Father will draw you. He says, if the Father uh, draws you, then you will come. In other words, you cannot make yourself a Christian. It's God that gives you the ability to believe. He jumps into the river of our self-centered lives where we're entangled with all kinds of sin. He illumines our minds, uh, renews our affections, liberates our wills, and enables us to embrace Jesus by faith. Hear me, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, is not a case of people trying hard to believe impossible things. People come to faith solely by God's grace. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation is intimately connected with the doctrines of grace. And because Jesus knew that that was the way it was, he could confidently say that all the Father gives me will come to me. There's no question in his mind about it. Jesus didn't ascend into heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how it would all turn out, worrying, what if no one believes in me? No, he knew with certainty that God would draw people to him. Now, some people say, that's a hard hard teaching. Who can accept it? But I tell you, I've never understood God's sovereignty and salvation that way. Because for me, it's the only answer to the mystery of faith. It's the only answer to why some people believe impossible, outrageous, ridiculous claims of Christ and other people don't. And that brings me great encouragement. It brings me encouragement as a preacher. Because it can, it can be disappointing when a preacher preaches his heart out and he sees people going out the back door unchanged. But it's also a comfort to realize that people walked away from Jesus like that and he wasn't demoralized by it because he believed all that the Father uh, draws to himself will come. It's also an encouragement to me as a believer 
Think about this. Aren't there times when you struggle with assurance and you wonder, am I really a Christian? Am, am I really going to heaven? How do I know that I won't fall away? Well, the answer is, if salvation is a matter of my self-effort, then I can never be sure. But Jesus gives us this security. He promises, I will not lose anyone that the Father gives me. I will raise them up on the last day. So you see, it's his hold on us, not our hold on him that counts in the long run. It encourages me to share the gospel because if God is in the process of drawing people to himself, then somebody has to tell them and it might as well be me, right? So I like to pray. I like to pray, Father, if you'll draw people to Jesus, I'll tell them about them. Right. And, 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 and Jesus didn't, that's why he didn't twist arms. That, he didn't use emotional appeals. He just presented the truth, invited people to believe in him, and he trusted God to do his work. But most of all, I believe this is a, Huge encouragement to a seeker because you might be here today and you're wrestling with some of the issues we've looked at this morning like, like what Jesus said, the claims that he makes about himself, like what Jesus says he did, what he can do, raising people up on the last day. You might be struggling with that, but here's the deal. When Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, he means you don't have to torment yourself with stupid questions as to whether you're on God's list or not. He has invited you to come. He said, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life, verse 40. He said, I tell you the truth, the one who believes has eternal life, verse 47. This is his invitation to you, and it is your responsibility to respond and to accept it. So the question that he puts to you is this. Do you want to come to Jesus? Do you find in your heart some desire, even if it's small, some desire, some attraction toward Jesus? Do you sense some stirring of faith, some concern over eternal things, no matter how faint, but it's there, there's a tug there. Do you feel anything like that? If you do, then those are the cords of God's love pulling you into, your fa into his family, drawing you in. And if you feel that, then thank God and come to Jesus. That's the way it is. That's the way he draws you. Think about it. If you were not, if God were not drawing you, if, you were, if he were not enabling you, if he were not giving you to Jesus, do you think for one moment that you would even consider believing the impossible things that Christians believe? Listen to this. Jesus says in verse 45, everyone who's heard and learn from the Father comes to me. Everyone who the Father is working on comes to me. And all you have to do is ask any Christian, and we'll all tell you that's our story. That's our story. In other words, what, what happened? How did I come to Christ? A light came on. I mean, for some of us, it came on suddenly. For others, it came on slowly. For some, it came painfully. For some, it comes joyfully. But at some point, a light came on, and for the very first time, we could see God as he is, and we could see ourselves as we actually are, and we could see that Jesus is our only hope for life. Who turned on the light? God did. His Spirit did. 
It didn't come through trying harder to make ourselves believe the impossible. No, it came by listening to God and responding to God as he was graciously calling us. It came because God showed us that Jesus was and is the only one who can give us eternal life, and it came to us as a gift. Let me tell you, there are a lot of things that I, I find that are hard to understand about Jesus, and some things he says are hard to accept. But the question is not, do you understand everything he says? The question is, are you ready to entrust yourself to everything that he is? See, that's exactly how Peter settled the matter in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you wanna go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. I mean, basically, Peter says, Lord, we've looked at the alternatives, and, and you know, like, this has been a rough day because we don't really understand everything that you've said today. But, Lord, we've never found anybody like you. Lord, what you say to us, what we've heard you say meets our, our, our deepest needs. What you said to us has delivered us from our sins. Your words have freed us from our fears. Your words, Lord, are the most remarkable words that we've ever heard. They explain life to us. They satisfy us because your words are eternal life. And so, Lord, we've come to believe. No, no, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And there's no other place we want to be except with you. That's, what, that's what's behind Peter's words. That's what it means to believe. Not that you understand everything Jesus says, but that you are willing to entrust yourself to everything that he is. True belief in Jesus does not mean you understand everything Jesus says. It means you entrust yourself to everything that he is. Is that what your heart is saying? Lord, I don't understand everything about you. I, I, I can't figure everything out, but Lord, I want you. I want you. If so, if that's what your heart if you feel that, you hear that in your heart, then God's drawing you into his family. He, and so I would say, trust him. Trust him now. Trust Jesus to give you what he promised he would give you, and that is eternal life. Life that starts now and goes on forever. Hear his promise one more time. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Believe in Jesus, and God will give you life in his name. Father God, thank you for this word. There are hard things in John chapter 6. There are hard things for us to make sense of. But God, we want you to know we don't have to understand it all. But Jesus, we see you as our all-sufficient Savior. And we want you to know that we do put our trust and faith in you and you alone to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life. Father, I pray for those who might be taking that step of faith today I pray that they would let us know, let the prayer team know, 
they would act on that faith so that we can come alongside and encourage them in this uh, new life that they've just begun. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.